ministry under his uh, pastorate. He licensed me to the ministry, had a profound impact on my life. And uh, so we've worked together many times. Um, Russ has just become a dear friend. I've, I've given up the pulpits at our church many times for him. Uh, and you are every bit as good a preacher as she is a singer, brother. Don't, uh, no matter what all your members say about you, I, that's, uh, that's what I think. And, uh, and don't be picking on your reading. I know you can read. You're not very good at math, but you're, he told me one time he failed, he, he failed so many math tests when he was in school, he said, if I had 50 cents for every math test I failed, I'd have $6.30. So that's, uh, I, I, I can appreciate that. All right, listen, we've got a lot to cover tonight. I really appreciate you coming out. So grateful that Russ allowed uh, Wendy and I to come in. Uh, Wendy and I have been married 32 years. We just celebrated our 34th uh, Valentine's Day together, and I hope you'll take time to come out and say hello to us at the table. Uh, we're here tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday morning. This is the first of about five different events on a four-week uh, trip down here to the southeast and then back through Dallas. We are from Colorado, and uh, just... Uh, just love, love uh, being here. Thanks for coming out. But I do have a lot to talk about, so we're going to take a question and answers at the end of each session. So as you're listening tonight, I'm going to be uh, talking fast, and we may cover some stuff that gets your attention, or you think, wow, that's interesting, or that's strange, or I have a question about that. Just make a mental note or jot it down, and we'll come back to it uh, after uh, I'm done tonight. We'll have a, have a special uh, Q&A. So here's the plan for tonight. I'm going to talk about uh, why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. And then tomorrow night, we're going to talk about Daniel's stunning prophecy and how critical that is to God's end times plan, which is about to unfold. As we look at the signs of the times, and as you're going to see tonight, it seems uh, more certain than ever that we are entering the last of the last days uh, prior to the Lord's return. And then on Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about Israel and God's plan of the ages. Israel, of course, has been in the news a lot uh, lately, and we're going to trace Israel and God's plan of the ages and talk about why that uh, matters. So for tonight, uh, we're going to talk about uh, seven things. Now, normally I, I have about ten signs of the times that when I have the opportunity, I try to lay them out. A lot of times that'll be a part one and a part two in a multi-message conference. But for, for this conference, I really wanted to, to focus on that tonight. So I'm going to just give seven of them. Uh, but I think after, even with seven, you'll begin to see that the stage is being set uh, like never before. Uh, but I've been studying Bible prophecy for most of my life. I was raised in a Christian home. My grandfather was a, a preacher, and my dad loved to talk about Bible prophecy. And so I just learned at an early age to have an interest in what the Bible has to say about uh, the end times. And one thing that I've noticed as I've been in ministry all these years is that most Christians today have what I would call an anthropocentric view of the Bible. In other words, they think the Bible is primarily about, or even in some cases only about, personal Christian living and salvation and the life here and now on this earth. And they, they tend to become consumed with that speck on the timeline of eternity that represents where they are born and where they die. But to be sure, personal salvation is, in fact, part of God's plan, the redemption story, how God purchased us with the blood of His own Son, paid our penalty on the cross, rose from the dead, and redeemed us and made us uh, have the opportunity to be right with the Holy God once again. No question about it, that's what's in the Bible. But that's far from all that God reveals to us 
in His Word. There's more to the Bible than simply individual redemption, and there's more to human life than that period of time between the cradle and the grave. The Bible is not simply a book of personal redemption. What a lot of people miss is that the Bible is a book that reveals God's plan for all of creation. God is working out His plan for the entire world. And the Bible explains that plan from creation to recreation as the Bible comes full circle to a once again pre-fall Edenic state in the new heavens and the new earth. It's really a new earth. It's really a book of creation history. And as you would expect, a plan, any plan has a beginning and an end, and the Bible is no exception. God wor- God's Word reveals His plan of the ages, His plan for all of creation from beginning to end. I wouldn't be surprised if everybody in this room tonight can quote the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning. In English, the first three words of the Bible, in Hebrew it's actually only two words, but the Bible begins the creation story of, of, of all of history with those words, in the beginning. Uh, and yet, how many people stop to ask, well, what about the end? We know the beginning, but most people are quite content to leave it there. And so the devil's done a good job today of convincing most people that there really is not a plan that God is working out. They don't study Bible prophecy. In fact, many people even mock Bible prophecy. They think there's no reason to study it. And yet, by my estimation, some 30% of the Bible is Bible prophecy, and half of that has yet to be fulfilled. So if you do the math, that's around 15, 16% of this book relates to future events. Why people would be content to study only 84 or 85% of the Bible is beyond me, but that's where most people are. If you look at God's plan of the ages in a panoramic view, we see uh, God working out Uh, His plan over the ages. It started some 6,000 years ago when God spoke the world into existence. He created time, space, and matter in the beginning. That's time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. And then uh, over time, we see God interacting in various ways in the progress of revelation as time went on. Um, and at some point in the future, uh, there's going to be a transitional time that, we, uh, that leads us into that final climactic battle between God and Satan that we're going to be talking about tonight and prepares us for the coming uh, kingdom, uh, which is God's plan all along. But if you look at that uh, you know, plan of the ages there, you, you find out we're living right here. We're in the last days, and the Bible calls this the last days. It calls it that for a reason, because if you look at God's plan of the ages, you'll see that indeed it is the final age prior to the kingdom age. If we go back to Genesis, it doesn't take long for the first major plot twist in God's plan of the ages uh, to develop. After the fall, God confronted Satan, the serpent, in the garden. He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Bruise there means to grip hard in in Hebrew. The idea here is there's going to be this battle that it began in the garden. Actually, as we're going to see, it began. Did I lose? Am I good? Okay. Uh, It's that alien implant. It just gets me every time. It interferes with the Wi-Fi. I don't know what it is. Uh, no, honestly, I'm not a bit surprised we had problems right off the bat. Every time I talk about this subject, it seems like the devil tries to distract. So we're going to go, we're going to power through it. But uh, this battle actually began in the heavens, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, when Satan attempted a coup, it got 
uh, roundly defeated, and he took one-third of the angels, set his sights on the earth. He uh, attacked Adam and Eve in the garden, and that began this battle that God's Word describes here in Genesis 3.15. It will culminate one day with Satan striking, metaphorically here, at a relatively benign part of the God-man's body, the heel. You know, you can, you can uh, stub your heel, you can bruise it, and it's, you know, it may hurt, and it, 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 it's, but it's not going to fully defeat you. But uh, if you grip, grip hard, that's what that word means at the heel. But you grip someone's head, you crush someone's head, it's over. And this is a reference to the ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior, who's going to defeat Satan. Matter of fact, he's already defeated. Uh, Satan just hasn't gotten the message yet. God in his sovereign plan is uh, allowing things to work out precisely as he said he would. Satan just doesn't believe that he's lost the battle. He's self-deceived. He knows the Bible better than most Christians, but he doesn't believe it's true. So he still thinks that he's the hero. He's going to win out. He's going to have a kingdom for himself. And that's what leads us to this final seven-year period called the tribulation period when uh, everything will reach a climax. The wrath of God's going to be being poured out. The wrath of Satan's going to be kicked up. The unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet that we're going to talk a lot about this weekend are going to work together to try to defeat God. And, uh, but Christ is going to come back at the Battle of Armageddon, and He will defeat a Satan uh, once and for all. He'll be put in prison for a thousand years. Here's our end times chart that we'll come back to again and again this weekend. Uh, when Christ comes back at the second coming and the Battle of Armageddon, Satan, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at that time. But Satan is imprisoned for a thousand years. We have the Messianic kingdom that starts out on the old earth, the millennium, Revelation chapter 20. But at the end of that, God destroys this old sin-stricken earth and recreates it in sinless uh, perfection as we read about in 2 Peter chapter 3. So I want to give us seven reasons. We're going to have to go uh, quickly here to get uh, through them all. But I want to discuss why I believe that Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. Things are happening today that relate directly to specific end times prophecies. Things today that we couldn't have dreamed of how they would be fulfilled even 20, 30, 40 years ago. Daniel tells us that as time goes on, knowledge is going to increase and things that he didn't even understand in one of the key prophecies that we're going to talk about tomorrow night in all of the Bible as it relates to God's end times plan. Someday we will be able to understand them and I think we're living in that day. So seven reasons I believe very strongly we're living in the last of the last days, ways that the stage is being set for fulfillment of prophecy, signaling that we're getting closer and closer uh, to the rapture. The first one of these on anyone's list ought to be the granting of statehood to Israel, one of the biggest ways that the stage is being set prophetically. But you have to understand the significance. Most of us growing up post-World War II uh, really, I think, have lost the significance of this. But in the grand scheme of 2,000 years of church history, you have to understand that from 70 A.D. until 1948, there was basically no Israel on our Rand McNally maps. Israel was just some ancient mythical country. People didn't really understand what it was. And so when the Bible talks so much about Israel and its prominence in the end times plan, people just couldn't understand how that could be. And that's why for nearly 2,000 years, they dismissed Bible prophecy, made it into one big metaphor, uh, adopted amillennialism and replacement theology, and thought, well, this can't be true. There's no Israel, right? But the end times has a lot to say about Israel. 
in, in the end times, in that seven-year tribulation, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and the Antichrist is going to allow the Jews for the first three and a half years to come back up and worship in Jerusalem. Then he's going to desecrate the temple with the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. He's going to set himself up on the throne as God in the temple and demand that the whole world worship him. That's what my latest book is about, the false prophet's role in overseeing and governing this full-spectrum planetary control where everybody has to worship uh, the, fall, the Antichrist are off with your heads. Everyone has to take the mark of the beast and to be able to buy, sell, travel, do anything else. And that all takes place in the temple. We have 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that are going throughout the world preaching the gospel in the 11th hour during this time. You have two Jewish witnesses at the midpoint. Everything focuses on Israel. When Christ comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation, let me put that uh, diagram back up. When Christ comes back at the second coming here, He's going to regather Israel into the land. He tells us this in Matthew 24, 31. He's going to send angels to the four corners of the earth and regather them supernaturally into the land that has been promised them. We're going to talk much more about that on Sunday morning. But when people saw Israel... Once again, given a homeland, become a nation state, that got people's attention. And it should have. Now, for the first time, there is an Israel for the Jewish people to return to. There is an Israel for both the Antichrist's temple to be rebuilt and ultimately Ezekiel's temple, the, the temple that Jesus Christ himself will rule and reign from in it for a thousand years. But again, as we said, uh, Jesus is going to gather his elect, that's believing Israel, from the four winds of uh, heaven from one end to the other. Uh, this is a direct fulfillment of many Old Testament passages. We'll, we'll say more about this on Sunday morning. But uh, when he says he's going to gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. When the Roman general Titus stormed into Jerusalem, burned the city, destroyed the temple, just as Jesus said he would, uh, just a few days before he was betrayed and arrested in the garden, Jesus said, look, not one stone's going to be left upon another. And in fact, that's exactly what happened by 70 A.D. And, and since that time, the Jews were scattered, and they've been all over this uh, planet. But when Christ comes back, they're going to be regathered. So to understand the significance of uh, 1948, when Israel became a nation, we've got to go back to the late 19th century and the rise of the modern Zionist movement. Theodore Herzl wrote The Jewish State in... 1896. He was the one that really started talking about the Zionist movement and getting the Jews back into a homeland. He convened the first Zionist World Congress in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. He put forth at that time what was called the Uganda Plan, but of course Uganda is not the Holy Land. Uganda is not God's land. Uganda is not where God's people belong, and so that didn't go anywhere. But what's really interesting is Hertz's famous quote September 3rd, 1897, in his diary. This, has really, this is really uh, a stunning. Uh, Pastor Russell, if you'd read that for us. No? Um, here's what he wrote. Listen carefully to this. He said, this is 1897, remember. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. Now remember, it's been since 70 A.D., 1800 years. There was no Jewish nation state. He said, at Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today in 1897, I would be answered by universal laughter. Maybe in five years, certainly in 50, everyone will know it. When did he say that or write that? 1897. What happened about 50 years later? 
by God's grace, Israel became a nation again on May 14, 1948. I mean, the prophetic significance of this cannot be overstated. You look at Genesis 15 and the boundaries that God promised to Abraham when He gave him the Abrahamic covenant. It's 300,000 square miles, what you see outlined in blue there. Uh, to this day, Israel has never, even in the Old Testament times, occupied the full land. They had the rights to it in Joshua's day, but they never inhabited it all. What you see in red there is modern-day Israel. Only two options, either God's a liar or made a mistake, or Israel's going to get the land again exactly the way God promised them they would in Genesis 15, 18 to 21. So the reestablishment of Israel in the land is absolutely uh, critical, the granting of statehood to Israel. Related to Israel, another key sign that I want to talk about is the Gog-Magog stage setting. The Gog-Magog stage setting. What do we mean by Gog-Magog? Well, Ezekiel uh, talks about a prophecy of a future northern alliance, specifically Russia. Uh, Gog is the leader of Magog. Magog, we know historically and geographically, is Russia. That's going to come against uh, Israel. Now, when is that going to happen? Uh, lots of views on that in my uh, eschatology book, What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times. I think I give eight different viewpoints, but I think the best evidence points to a time after the rapture, but prior to the signing of the treaty that commences the seven-year uh, tribulation period. In other words, after the rapture, millions of people have disappeared, uh, the, the Lord catching the church up to meet Him in the air. Uh, and then all chaos is going to break loose. There's an unspecified length of time. We don't know how long. But during that time, things begin to fall into place to set the stage uh, for the Antichrist. Now, as we're going to be seeing tonight, we may already be in a one-world system prior to the rapture. Nothing precludes that biblically. All we know is that the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year tribulation period, will not begin until after the rapture, sometime after the rapture. 1 Thess 1.10, 1 Thess 5.9 tells us the church is not going to be here during the outpouring of God's wrath. We're promised that. We're not promised that we will escape persecution, trouble, difficulty. In fact, Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament promise us just the opposite. And indeed, if you look through 2,000 years of church history, our brothers and sisters in Christ have faced all kinds of unspeakable atrocities, and it's happening today in unprecedented numbers. We've been pretty sheltered from that uh, here in America, but if the Lord doesn't come back soon, I believe we're going to experience some of those same types of uh, persecution. I have a whole chapter on that in Spirit of the Antichrist, uh, Volume 2. But that's when I think it's going to happen. But I want you to look at some of the participants in this northern alliance that comes against Israel from Ezekiel 38, 5, and 6. We've got Persia, that's modern-day Iran. And then we've got Ethiopia, that's modern-day Sudan, and Put, which is modern-day Libya. Gomer is Turkey today, and Togarma refers to Syria. Now, if you just look at those nations across the bottom of the screen, do any of those sound familiar? They should, because they're in the news almost every day. This is that alliance that's going to come against Israel uh, in the end times. And indeed, uh, we see Israel and Russia getting more and more chummy as time uh, goes on. So the Gog-Magog stage setting is another key stage setting event. Number three is the great satanic reset. Now this has really been uh, the focus of my research for the last 17, 18 years. It resulted in my latest three books, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist 1 and 2 and Spirit of the False Prophet that came out over the last two years. Uh, it's, it's just uh, an overview 
and manifestations of this greatest conspiracy of all time, which is the conspiracy between Satan, evil spirits, demons, and human accomplices trying to defeat God. It's straight out of Scripture, as we shall see in a moment. But the great satanic reset is fundamentally a spiritual battle. We often forget the words of Paul that, look, our battle here is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against Biden or the Democrats or the progressives or Obama or Hillary. Our battle is against the enemy, Satan. Now, clearly, as I'm going to show you tonight, he's using human accomplices to bring about his plan. But it is, first and foremost, a spiritual battle. It started out in the heavenlies. And it's a battle that involves uh, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Bible describes this conspiracy in Psalm 2. King David wrote a Psalm 2, and it reminds us that Satan has been plotting this new world order, as it came to be called, uh, for millennia now. This was a thousand years before Christ, and David wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. There's that conspiracy. Remember, a conspiracy is just two or more people working together to commit a crime, usually planning it in secret. So they're taking counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. That's against God Almighty, God the Father, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, His anointed. What are they saying as they conspire together in dark, smoke-filled rooms. They're saying, let us break their bonds. Notice there is capitalized in the New King James. That's a reference to the triune Godhead in pieces and cast away their cords from us. See, here's the issue. Satan hates God. He hates that God's in charge. He hates that God's almighty. He hates that God's the creator. Uh, he has coveted that power and that authority from the beginning. Satan wants to be in control. He has control issues, and he wants to defeat God. And he's uh, working hand in puppet with these earthly uh, accomplices to, to do that. Now, how does God respond? David goes on to tell us, well, he just sits in the heavens and laughs. <laughs> Why? Because God is outside of time, space, and matter. God exists in the eternal now, and he already knows how it's going to end. He planned how it's going to end. God's going to hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in His wrath. That's why that seven-year tribulation that comes after the rapture is called the great day of the Lord's wrath in Zephaniah. It is an outpouring of God's wrath. The sealed judgments begin the outpouring of God's wrath. And that's when God makes all things right. All the inequities and injustices of this world, all the unfairness, all the good, bad things happening to good people and all the bad, evil people that seem to get off scot-free uh, are just, uh, God's going to make, God's going to bring it about. God's going to, you know, equalize it and, and they'll get their vengeance. That's why the Bible says, vengeance is mine, uh, saith the Lord. Uh, but you skip ahead to Revelation chapter 13. Oh, let me finish this passage here. God's not only going to speak to them in His wrath, but notice He says, what's He going to say? I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is what we call grammatically a prolepsis. That's just a fancy word that just means he's speaking in the past tense. Notice, I have set of something that hasn't happened yet in time, but it's as good as done. From God's perspective, it is done. You can count on it. That's why God can sit 
and watch Satan frantically working with all these human accomplices to try to take over the world and know it's, it's all futile. You know, why do they plot in vain, he says. It's, it's vain, it's futile. Uh, but you skip ahead to Revelation 13 and we see the Antichrist uh, and we see how for a short period of time, indeed, Satan is going to get his you know, day in the limelight. For seven years, he will rule the world. It'll be seven horrific years, seven short-lived years, uh, but it's all part of God's plan, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of 490 years. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. And, and Christ will come back at the end of it, and he will realize uh, that his time is done. Revelation 16 talks about how during that time the kings of the earth and the whole world will gather together to battle in the preparation here for the battle of Armageddon. So when we talk about the great satanic reset, we're really talking about what the elites of our day are calling the Great Reset, which predates the pandemic. A lot of people think it came about as a result of the, uh, uh, the pre-planned, by the way, in my Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, I, the biggest chapter in there is on what I call the control of virus scamdemic. I have 16 smoking guns that prove it was planned 22 years in advance. This wasn't just an organic thing. It was planned. It's right on cue. Uh, I'm speaking in Orlando next weekend on the Luciferian timeline, which is taken from one of the chapters in Volume 2. And I'm going to talk about how this decade has been what the Luciferian elite have been plotting and planning and looking for since the 1930s. They're on record talking about the 2020s, particularly 2025. So this Great Reset was a terminology that was way ahead of the pandemic. They just started to use the pandemic to help kick it into high gear. But I consider this the Luciferian endgame. This is the Great Satanic Reset. And I lay this out both biblically and historically in chapters 2 through 4 of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1. But here's the greatest conspiracy of all time. Again, a conspiracy, two or more people or entities working together to do something nefarious or bad. Satan working with evil spirits, demons and the like, and human accomplices. That's the conspiracy. The human element of that is what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about uh, tonight. I've diagrammed this out and explained this in much greater detail in my books, but just for some perspective, at the top tier you've got maybe six or eight families that literally worship Satan and talk to him the way you and I pray to Almighty God. They're, they're meeting in, in rooms, sacrificing children, drinking blood, and praying to Satan. You don't know who these people are. They're not the face. They're not the enemies that we think you know, of when we think about the bad guys. You know, this goes way beyond the George Soroses and David Rockefellers and you know, Klaus Schwabs of the world. Uh, these, are, these are Satanists. And if you don't think that exists, you haven't read your Bible. Because we know for a fact it existed prior to Christ in the ancient Near East when they were sacrificing children to Moloch and drinking blood and worshiping the enemy. Uh, and it's certainly not stopped. Depravity doesn't self-correct. And depravity is a degenerative disease. It gets worse over time, not better. So here we are several thousand years later, and of course it's still happening. And I document that in the book. At the second level, uh, you've got hundreds of thousands of people, uh, many of whom are quite well aware that they are part of a broader satanic conspiracy. Many of them are not. They're on a need-to-know basis, but you've got business in the business realm, things like the privately owned central banks, like the privately owned Federal Reserve, World Bank, other foundations like Rockefeller and the Gates Foundation. You've got all the secret societies. I'm going to be speaking about that next weekend as well. 
Uh, and then at the bottom level, you've got millions of people, most of whom have no idea. They're working hand in puppet with Satan. Uh, they're just doing a job. Some of them are good, God-fearing people, uh, people that love our country, for example, that might work for the CIA or FBI. Not everybody in those organizations is evil. Uh, there's you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are on the payroll of those organizations. But you better believe at the top level, they are absolutely locked in to a Luciferian agenda. They are trying to bring down America and take over uh, this world. And, and uh, I, do, I document all of this in the first two books uh, that, that lay out in their own words what they've been trying to do to bring down America. It all really started in the early 20th century because God's fingerprints are all over the founding of this country. And even though the Luciferians were sent over from Europe to try to create a beachhead for the New World Order, that's why they called it the New World, uh, God had a hundred and, what, fifty years head start of God-fearing people when they came over on the Mayflower in 1620. And it wasn't until 1770 that the Freemasons and all the Luciferians were sent over to kind of create a new outpost to take over the world. Well, by that time, I mean, just imagine 150 years, that's a long time. God's people were everywhere. They were, uh, you know, uh, populating the earth and they were reading their Bibles and praying and serving the Lord and building churches and building institutions. And God had other plans, as He often does, uh, than what the Satanists had. And he, His fingerprints are all over the founding of this great country, which is why we've done more to spread the gospel and uh, for the cause of Christ than any other nation in world history. And yet... By 1900, uh, the Luciferian elite said, enough's enough. America is the one thing standing in the way of the one world government that Satan's trying to usher in and will usher in, according to the Bible. They've got to get America out of the way in order to, 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 uh, to accomplish their goal, right? Uh, We've got too many guns, too many Bibles, too many Christians, uh, too many people that are not going to make it easy for them to just waltz right in and, and sign on to the New World Order. And so that's why this is such an urgent matter and such a pivotal uh, era. Uh, but so they set in motion, beginning in the early 1900s, a series of plans that we are reaping the benefits of uh, today. I can promise you in 1900, nobody was talking about the transgender movement or gender surrender or slicing and dicing up your eight-year-olds to change their bodily you know, features. Nobody was talking about that then. Nobody was talking about most of what we see as commonplace uh, today. But they've done a masterful job of taking over the narrative. Uh, and if you don't think uh, that modern day uh, accomplices in this Luciferian agenda worship Satan, consider the words of Saul Alinsky. Saul was uh, uh, very influential in Obama, Barack Obama's uh, life. Uh, he, of course, wrote the famous book, Rules for Radicals, that uh, many people credit uh, with helping Obama uh, get elected by following that uh, pattern. But in that book, he actually dedicates the book to Lucifer. He says, Thus we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. See, they think Lucifer is the hero in the Genesis account, and God is the antagonist. They think Lucifer won and God is trying to horn in on Satan's kingdom. That's what they think. This is the same guy who died in 1972. Shortly before he died, he did an interview with Playboy magazine in which he said, quote, I can't wait to get to hell because they're my kind of people. That's how these people think. They worship Satan the way you and I, in the power of the Spirit, worship 
Almighty God. We could spend all night looking at quotes, and, and I have, you know, over the three books, hundreds of them uh, in, in my books uh, making this case. But just a couple of more here. Here's Manly P. Hall, a Satan worshiper from Canada, famous for his book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. And he said, there are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth, and men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, in that same time frame, 1901 to 1908, when the Luciferians in America got together with the powerful elite and decided what can we do to take control away from God's people in this country. And he himself said, behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government. Edward Bernays, credited with being the father of public relations. I have a lot more to say about him, but for the sake of time, we'll just leave it with this one uh, quote, but he said, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government. Even a former Supreme Court justice uh, from the mid-20th century, 1950s and 60s, said the real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise power uh, from behind the scenes. So there's no question we see a great satanic reset coming. It's been in the works for many, many years. You could say it's been in the works since the Garden of Eden. But in America, again, the one problem for the Luciferians is this country. Uh, it's been in the works for the last 120 years. Number four is the globalism surge. Now this, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to notice this. There's no question that uh, even if you weren't aware of the Luciferian conspiracy that the Bible talks about and that they've written about for you know, centuries, there's no question uh, that, you know, we're heading towards a globalist uh, culture. But let's, before we get into that, I want to just give you a biblical overview of God's using of human government. And it's important to put this in perspective. Remember my plan of the ages chart, we see that things are working out a plan. There is a beginning and there is an end when Christ comes back to make all things new. A lot of people know about the beginning even though they've been deceived into thinking the world is millions of years old and we all evolved from a wet rock and our ancestors were gorillas, the fact of the matter is they know there's a beginning somewhere, even though they've been deceived into what God's Word says about that. But people forget the end. So let's overlay human government in God's plan of the ages. Basically, God's plan starts with globalism, shifts into nationalism, and then will return once again uh, to globalism. It started with divine globalism when God spoke the world into existence. And what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, the whole earth had one language and one speech. That's divine globalism. There were not nation states. Everybody on the earth reported directly to God. Divine globalism. But we know after the flood we see a shift into nationalism, which is the paradigm we still remain in to this day. And it's interesting when you read the biblical record of this shift, you go back to Genesis chapter 11. This is about 100 years after the global flood. And so we're 2020, say 2242 B.C., just to pinpoint a date. And God says, uh, or the people at that time, only 100 years after God had judged the whole world with a flood. It didn't take long for that depravity of man to once again reach a pinnacle. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. To really understand what's going on with the Tower of Babel here, you've got to go back one chapter to chapter 10, and a guy by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod 
was a grandson of Ham, so that would make him the son of Cush, Ham's son. So basically, Nimrod was one of Noah's great-grandsons, to put that in perspective. And the Hebrew name Nimrod means, quote, we shall rebel. And he is the first powerful king over a regional area of the globe on planet Earth. The first cities of his kingdom were cities like Babylon, which was formed out of the Tower of Babel. That's where the name comes from, Nineveh and Kela in Assyria. And what's interesting is Josephus, that first century a contemporary of Christ, in his book, uh, the Book of Antiquities, he says this about Nimrod. He said, Nimrod persuaded them to attribute their prosperity not to God, but to their own valor, and little by little transformed the state of affairs into tyranny. I believe Nimrod was one of Satan's Antichrist candidates. Remember, First John 2.18 says, One Antichrist, capital A, is coming, but many Antichrists has come. Satan has his man of the hour in every age. He doesn't know when God's going to shift into his end times plan. And I believe early on, Satan said, okay, maybe here's my chance. Um, and, and so he said that he shifted this into a, to a tyranny, holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God was by making them continuously dependent upon his power. Sound familiar? I mean, again, Nimrod is 20, I'd say 2000 B.C., 2000 years before Christ, 4000 years ago today. And this evil man under the behest of Satan was trying to convince people that he was in control and to make them dependent upon his power. He threatened to have his revenge on God if he wished to inundate the earth again. A lot of people have no idea why they built this tower. It wasn't just about being higher than God or in your face to God. It was for self-preservation. It had only been 100 years since God wiped out the world in a global flood. And yes, it was a global flood. That's what it means when it says over all the high hills and mountains of the earth, all means all. What did you say earlier? All means all, and that's all all means. I mean, right? That's all. So the Bible's not ambiguous about this, even though liberal scholars have tried to suggest it didn't happen. By the way, I did a podcast last week. We do a podcast every day. I did it with a creation scientist who fascinating discussion of how the Grand Canyon formed in a matter of days, not over millions of years because of the Colorado River. Uh, it was a part of the global flood. So were the Rocky Mountains where we uh, live. But so they built this tower. He said he would build a tower higher than the water could reach and avenge the destruction of their forefathers. And so God came down and confounded their language, sent them abroad, and we entered into the age of nationalism. And that's the age we're still in today. One day, however, God's divine plan is going to return to globalism. This return to globalism will happen in two stages. First, satanic globalism, as we're going to talk about tomorrow night. When the revived Roman Empire comes into place, the Antichrist takes control, and the whole world must worship him. It's a one-world government, a one-world system, politically, religiously, and economically. The um, book of Revelation tells us this, that the Antichrist will have authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. But when Christ comes back to take the throne, then we see the shift and return, if you will, back to divine globalism when all the nations will go up to worship the king. The whole earth will be filled with his glory, Solomon told us in Psalm 72. Isaiah the prophet says the whole governments, all the governments will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of the government and peace there will be no end. So if you go back to my plan of the ages, it started out with globalism. We're now living in the age of nationalism and it will return full circle to an age of globalism. 
or to put it in the end times perspective, once the rapture happens, we will be shifting, if not before, but for sure after that, shifting back into a globalist regime that will ultimately be led first by the Antichrist and finally by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords himself. So I believe we are teetering right now on the brink between nationalism and globalism. Now, very important, God's in charge of the timetable, not us. And as long as we're still under the divine dispensation of nationalism, we ought to fight tooth and nail for national sovereignty. We need not cede our sovereignty as a nation to any organization. You know, the World Health Organization pandemic treaty that, you know, Biden's been talking about and Klaus Schwab's been pushing and others. Uh, none of that is of God. We are a free nation. We have inalienable rights as our Constitution gives us, and we ought to hold on to that. But we understand that at some point in the future, uh, the United States, like all people of the world, will sign on to a one-world government. It's what they've been calling a new world order, as I mentioned. Uh, this has been their plan, Satan's plan, uh, all along. Uh, I'm going to give you a few quotes here from history. We'll go through them very fast just for the sake of time. But we have many, many more in the books to, to, to show you that this isn't just some catchphrase that conspiracy theorists uh, like to make up. By the way, I, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, except the ones that are true. All right? And there are conspiracies, including the greatest conspiracy of all time that we're talking about tonight. Uh, Biden said, now is the time when things are shifting. There's going to be <clears throat> a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. In setting an American agenda for a new world order, we must begin with a profound alteration in traditional thought. <clears throat> Working back in time to the 70s, here's uh, Kissinger who said, the new world order cannot happen without U.S. participation. <clears throat> there will be a new world order and it will force the United States to change <clears throat> its perceptions. He said, when Obama was elected in 2008, see, Obama was the first truly Manchurian president who they groomed from birth to become president. <clears throat> so all of those Luciferian elites uh, thought this was their day. And because uh, these guys, even Kissinger and Rockefeller, they're, they're both dead now, but you know, they don't, they're not, again, at the top tier. They're pretty evil dudes, no question, but they're not at the top tier. So they don't necessarily know what these demonic spirits that Alice Bailey channeled in the 1930s when she wrote all of her uh, demonically inspired books and talked about the 2020s. They weren't necessarily on, on board with that. They just know it's coming and they want to get there. So when Obama got elected, he thought, okay, now here it is. And he, he told CNBC in an interview shortly after Obama was elected, I think that his task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. Uh, Kissinger, by the way, also said this uh, in a congressional hearing related to Watergate. He's on record. You can find it in the archives, quote, the, when asked about, uh, you know, stuff that they were doing that could have been illegal. He said, the illegal we do immediately. The unconstitutional takes a little longer. After World War II, just about every world leader was talking about an authoritative world order. Churchill mentioned it. Charles de Gaulle from France said nations must unite in a world government or perish. Warburg from the famous Warburg Bankster family. His father was one of the founders of the privately owned Federal Reserve that was founded just off the coast here of Georgia on Jekyll Island. He said we shall have world government whether you like it or not by conquest or consent. Brzezinski <coughs> Uh, I have a whole section on him in, in my latest book, but he said 
that ultimately this regionalization plan, talking about the trilateral commission that he was a part of, is, the goal of it is a one world government. National sovereignty is no longer a viable concept. That's what he said. H.W. Bush, remember in his State of the Union address in 1991, talked about fulfilling the long-held promise of a new world order. Nixon met with the Chinese leader in February of 1972 and said each of us has the hope to build a new world order. Gorbachev talked often about moving toward a new world order. H.G. Wells, a big part of the new world order, uh, himself wrote a book called The New World Order in which he said countless people are going to hate this new world order and will die protesting it. David Rockefeller said all we need is the right major crisis and everyone will unite and accept the new world order. Uh, in his memoirs, certainly before he died, shortly before he died at the age of 101 back in 2017, he said, look, some people believe we're part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, building a one world government, if you will. Well, if that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. See, these people don't have any problem coming forward uh, especially in their latter days. He said, the world is now prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite is definitely preferable to national sovereignty, what he goes on to say there. Now, Kissinger talks about how all we need is the right crisis and, and then people will accept the new world order to come in and rescue them. And I think that's what we're headed toward uh, probably very soon. Again, we know what they're saying, the Luciferians. We've read their blueprint, a lot of leaked documents and a lot of in-your-face documents, especially these days coming out of the World Economic Forum and other places. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen because God is the ultimate one in charge, and, and we don't know what His timetable is. He might say we need another hundred years. I don't know. But it behooves us to heed the warning of Proverbs 22.3 to, to, to see trouble coming and prepare for it. Uh, and, uh, and, and certainly if we know the enemy's game plan, we can uh, do a better job of that. So we see Satan's earthly conspirators, as we talked about from Psalm 2, again, conspiring together, counseling together. Uh, but we need to remember that the Luciferian plot is no match for the Lord's plan. We know who wins in the end. Uh, we know it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's part of God's plan as well. 2 Timothy 3.13 says evil men and impostors are getting worse and worse. World Economic Forum is really one of the biggest and most powerful of the many globalist uh, organizations that influence world events. Klaus Schwab is the man behind the World Economic Forum. He was born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938. Uh, he's a child of Adolf Hitler's Germany. And he really has dedicated his life to reinventing Hitler's dystopian nightmare. He likes to appear in galactic garb, especially when making major announcements. And he is really the front man. He's kind of at mission control, if you will, right now helping drive this agenda. His book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, talked about five pillars of civilization that need to be reimagined. And as we've been talking about, one of those was geopolitical. We've got to reset Geopolitics, nation states will not do. We must have a supranational elite that are in charge of the world. Well, what do we see in God's Word? We see in Revelation the ten horns, which it says are ten kings that will ultimately uh, uh, take over and help the Antichrist and then be subdued by the Antichrist during that future seven-year tribulation. What is their goal? To make war with the Lamb. Uh, so, you know, we, we could think of the, the, these end times kings as trying to help Satan through the Antichrist, whom he will indwell, rule the world. That's what Satan's wanted. He wants all of the created realm to be under his jurisdiction. He covets that. 
Uh, you read about that in Isaiah 14. But uh, as they seek to take over the world, we can think of the Club of Rome, a secret group founded by Aurelio Pecci, David Rockefeller, and Alexander King in 1968. And they uh, established this uh, you know, secret society. I talk about them in my section on secret societies. Uh, and their purpose was to control the world's financial system in order to implement a one-world government. Well, what do they describe? Well, in 1973, they put out a report entitled The Regionalization, sorry, The Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System. Let me say that again. This was the Luciferian elite's plan. The Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System, in which they described 10 regions. North America, Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Russia, you can see the rest of them on the screen there. Schwab, in his more recent book, The Great Narrative, which came out in 2022, says, quote, the geopolitical and technological landscapes are being reshaped in a way that will make them unrecognizable in just a few years. He says, solutions will require a great deal of innovation and dramatic changes in our economies and societies, as well as in the institutions that govern them. So as we see this globalism surge, we see things like the United Nations coming out of World War II. We see the World Health Organization. We see the World Trade Organization. We see the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the BRICS nations that just added a bunch more in January to their list. And just last week, they had the annual World Government Summit, always held in uh, Dubai. Uh, in the UAE. What was their theme this year? It was shaping future governments, shaping human, uh, future governments. Uh, Klaus Schwab was there. He spoke at the World Government Summit. And listen to this one-minute uh, clip of what he had to say about what is coming down the pike. So if we're online here, audio. Of the power of the combination of So it's a combination of the different technologies which really bring the fundamental change. And finally, um, I think we have to be prepared for a world where we see a fusion of our physical, our digital, and our biological uh, dimensions. So it will be a world integrating the physical, biological, and um, the so it will be a new world, and um, I'm looking for a minister in 10 years, uh, probably it will be completely different from what it is now. See how he got that glee in his face and a glint in his eyes, it's, it will be a new world, right? That's what they have been looking for uh, for some time. All right, I'm going to skip ahead. Uh, well, I've got to show you this one quote, because this always shocks people if they weren't aware of this. This is just another example of a key American figure who was secretly working to bring about a one-world government. This is Walter Cronkite receiving an award at the World Federalist Association. It was called the Global Governance Award, and he received it for his assistance in helping to advance the world governance agenda. And uh, in this clip, let me set the stage for you, uh, he gets up to receive the award, and he, he mocks conservative Christians who think that only Christ should be allowed to preside over a one-world government. I mean, how foolish is that? And, and listen to what he said. Stunning. Your leader, Pat Robertson, has written in the 
years ago that we should have a world government, but only when the Messiah arrives. He wrote, I know, any attempt to achieve world order before that time must be the work of the devil. Well, join me. I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. Join me. I'm happy to sit here at the right hand of Satan. You need to read the chapter on Operation Mockingbird to understand how they controlled the media and still control it to this day. Moments later, uh, then First Lady Hillary Clinton gets up to congratulate Con Cronkite and listen to what she said. Or I guess, I guess they piped her in. We would like to bring you a message from the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Good evening and congratulations, Walter, on receiving the World Federalist Association's Global Governance Award. For more than a generation in America, it wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. It wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. That has a lot more meaning than you might at First think. All right, let's uh, skip ahead to number five here, uh, government surveillance. Uh, this is so profound. It's all over the place. We see uh, a technocracy being rolled out. The uh, title of my most recent book is uh, Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. What's a technocracy? It just means using technology to uh, control the world. Now, Yuval Noah Harari is uh, Klaus Schwab's sort of right-hand guy. And listen to his description here of what is uh, happening before our very eyes. It's not really about truth. It's about power. For the first time in history, it's possible to completely eliminate privacy. It was just never possible before, and it is possible now. Something fundamental has changed. When dictators always dreamt about completely eliminating privacy, monitoring everybody all the time, and knowing everything you do, and not just everything you do, but even everything you, you think and everything you feel. They could never do it, because it was technically impossible. Now it's possible. Now it's possible. That's why Elon Musk said that uh, AI can take over the world if we create this digital superintelligence. Because the one company of small group of people managed to develop godlike digital superintelligence, they can take over the world. At least when there's an evil dictator, that human is going to die. But for an AI, there would be no death. It would live forever. And then you'd have an immortal dictator from which we can never escape. So this gets into transhumanism. Remember, Satan hates humanity because humanity is the highest pinnacle of creation. We're made in the image of God. We are to be God's image bearers. And when Satan sees you and me, especially those who have been made right with a holy God by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, we've been born again, spiritually reborn, he sees God. Uh, we're not that we're gods, but we are to be representing God. We are to be His image bearers. And that's why God made us the highest pinnacle of creation. And so Satan wants to completely marginalize and destroy humanity, transcend it, hence transhumanism, and create his own life. He'll never be able to do that. He's not a creator. He can't create ex nihilo out of nothing, but he's certainly going to try. And he's using uh, biodigital convergence, he's using chemicals, he's using pure technology and AI uh, to do that. But they hate 
humanity. Uh, you all know her already said we're probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens because uh, coming generations will learn how to engineer bodies, brains, and minds. He said most people don't contribute anything uh, to society except for their data, but he said increasingly these kinds of people are going to be uh, redundant and we need to replace them. He said 99% of human qualities and abilities are redundant. And then I want you to listen to this 90-second clip. Two things I want you to listen for that to me are stunning. Number one, he compares us to just, you know, uh, uh, jellyfish and I forget all the different animals. That We're just nothing. We have no human, no, no human rights at all, no inalienable rights from God. God is just a fiction. We have no uh, free will. And then he's, at the very end, he shifts into, I mean, this is one of the most profound quotes of all of his quotes that I've found that shows their agenda. He shifts into how there's no such thing as national sovereignty either, because that's the two things that they want to accomplish. Listen carefully. Many, maybe most legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a very nice story, may be a very attractive story, we want to believe it, but it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside, you find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same thing is also true in the political field. States and nations are also, like human rights, and like God, and like heaven, they too are, are, are just stories. A mountain is a reality. You can see it, you can touch it, and even smell it. But Israel or the United States, they are just stories very powerful stories, stories we might want to believe very much, but still they are just stories. You can't really see the United States. You cannot touch it. You cannot smell it. So we're just algorithms. These organisms are algorithms, and so they're creating all kinds of humanoid robots. China has plans to mass-produce humanoid robots by 2025. Um, you, you see more and more of them taking on roles in all kinds of sectors of uh, the uh, business world. Uh, and then the last one, and then I'll take your questions as we talk about government uh, surveillance. We could, we could talk about digital currency. Remember Revelation 13, no one may buy or sell uh, without it. They've been working on this. Australia, this was just in the news yesterday, becomes the latest country to launch a digital ID uh, system. Lots more we could say about that. But the last sign uh, is the gathering uh, oh, I guess I've got two more. Gathering storm of financial collapse. We won't get into that except to say that we are 34, I checked yesterday, $34.2 trillion in debt as of yesterday. I mean, that, we can't even comprehend those numbers. There's absolutely no way we'll ever dig out. They're just feeding it along, waiting to pull the plug. We are on life support, and when they're ready, I think one of the multiple ways in a and sort of a cumulative effect that they're going to use to bring down this country is an economic uh, collapse. Uh, food prices are going up, inflation is going up, 
Gas prices are going up. They ebb and flow. Yes, that's true, but they are coming back. Federal Reserve is privately owned. I think most of you know that. It's no more federal than Federal Express. Uh, six families own it. That's why every dollar bill or $5 bill, every um, piece of currency says Federal Reserve note. It's a debt instrument. Every time the Federal Reserve prints the money, we pay them interest. So they're happy to keep printing money, qualitative easing, QE3, QE4, QE infinity, because they get richer uh, and richer. And then the last one is the godless spiritual apostasy. Lots more I could say on that, but for the sake of time, I want to get to your questions because I know we've probably generated quite a bit of uh, questions. But we know the Bible is very clear that in the latter days, uh, people are going to depart from the faith. They're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, they will have itching ears. They will not endure sound doctrine. Perilous times will come, and we see all kinds of manifestations of that apostasy uh, today. So I'll leave you with this uh, word of uh, encouragement. Um, this is by the British missionary who frequently wrote for the Fundamentals, a, a great early 20th century co uh, compendium of articles all about the faith and the Bible. Fascinating. But he said, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. See, why do we study all of this? Why do I sound the alarm? Uh, Russ alluded to 1 Thess 5, 6 earlier. Let, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake. We have a job to do. God has us here for a reason. It's not about us. It's not about our best life now or finding our purpose or anything else. It's about being soldiers in the Lord's army, remembering that spiritual battle, winning others to Christ until our dying day. And the fact that we are getting so close to that time in this country where we've been largely sheltered for so long uh, to the end of that era should motivate us even more than ever to, to, to storm the gates of hell, to run towards the roar. Uh, you know, the, the Satan is a roaring lion. So if you're here tonight, and I, I know we've got some visitors, we've got people from different walks of life, you need to understand that priority number one right now is to trust in Christ. If you don't know for certain that you're going to spend eternity in heaven, today's the day. Don't leave that to chance. Uh, you know, James says we're not promised tomorrow. It's like a vapor. Uh, that's priority number one. Are you, whose team are you on? Are you a child of wrath or are you a child of God? John 1.12 says, To as many as believed Him, He gives the right to become a child of God. In John 3.36, John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe does not have life. And the wrath of God abides in Him. It's a simple matter of faith. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. You can't work for it. You can't sign a contract with God. You can't promise anything, pledge anything. You have nothing to give. It's nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the simple message of grace. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. And we are saved not by works, but according to, uh, to grace. So I hope you'll trust Him uh, tonight if you haven't. If you're a believer and you've already trusted Christ, then now's not the time to be faint-hearted. God's not given us a spirit of fear. We have a job to do. What are you doing today to both prepare for what lies ahead as well as make a difference as long as God has you topside this earth? Let me close in prayer, then I think we're going to have Russ say a word, and then we'll shift into your questions. We'll have a microphone, and love to take your questions as we wrap up. Father, thank you for your time, uh, our time together tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it does give us a roadmap, even though we tend to ignore it. 
Lord, I pray that you would remind us that nothing surprises you, that this is all working out precisely as you've told us in your word. But Lord, help us to be sober, be vigilant, uh, to be watchful. And again, we pray if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that today in simple, uh, childlike faith, they would come to know you as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.